You are so missed. Good evening, it's Monday, the 7th of January, 2008, and it's Miet's Bedtime Story Podcast. Youth, Beautiful Youth, by Herman Hesse. Even my uncle, Matthias, was pleased after his fashion to see me again. When a young man, who has been in foreign parts for several years, comes back home one day, and turns out to have done rather well for himself, even the coolest relations will smile and gladly shake his hand. The small brown suitcase, in which I was carrying my worldly goods, was still brand new, with a sound lock and gleaming straps. It contained two clean suits, plenty of underwear, a new pair of boots, a small number of books and photographs, two handsome pipes, and a small pistol. In addition, I had with me my violin case and a knapsack full of trifles, two hats, a cane and an umbrella, a light coat and a pair of overshoes. All these things were stout and new, and moreover, sewed into my breast pocket, I had more than two hundred marks in savings and a letter promising me a good position abroad for the coming autumn. It all made quite a respectable outfit, and now, with my journeyman's years behind me, I was returning with all this equipment. I came back a man of the world to my hometown, which I had left as a diffident problem child. With creeping caution, the train descended the hill in great winding curves, and with each turn, the houses, streets, rivers and gardens of the town below came closer and grew more distinct. Soon I could distinguish the roofs and pick out the familiar ones. Soon, too, I could count the windows and recognise the stork nests. And while childhood and boyhood and a thousand precious memories of home were wafted toward me out of the valley, my sense of arrogant triumph at the homecoming slowly melted away. My desire to make a big impression upon all those people down there yielded to a feeling of grateful astonishment. Homesickness which in the course of the years had ceased to trouble me, assailed me powerfully in this last quarter hour. Every clump of broom near the station platform and every familiar garden fence became strangely precious to me, and I asked each to forgive me for having been able to forget it and get along without it for so long. When the train passed above our garden, I saw someone standing at the topmost window of the old house and waving a large towel. That must have been my father. And on the veranda, my mother and the maid were standing, also waving, and from the top chimney, faint blue smoke from the fire for the coffee flowed up into the warm air and out over the little town. All this now belonged to me again. It had all waited for me, and was now welcoming me. 
At the station, the bearded old platform attendant ran about just as excited as he always had been, herding people away from the tracks, and among the people I saw my sister and my younger brother looking for me, expectantly. For my baggage, my brother had brought along the little express wagon that had been our pride all through our boyhood. On it we placed my suitcase and knapsack. Fritz pulled, and I followed along behind with my sister. She reproved me for wearing my hair so short now, but thought my moustache handsome and my new suitcase very elegant. We laughed and looked into each other's eyes, and from time to time clasped hands again and nodded to Fritz, who went on ahead with a little card, but kept turning around to look at me. He was as tall as I, and had filled out nicely. As he walked ahead of us, I suddenly remembered that when we had been boys, I had sometimes hit him in the course of quarrels. I saw again his child's face and his offended or sorrowful eyes, and I felt something of the same painful penitence I had always felt in those days as soon as my anger had ebbed away. Now Fritz strode along, tall and grown up, and already with blonde down around his chin. We went down the avenue of cherry and rowan trees and past the upper footbridge, a new star, and many old, unchanged houses. Then came the corner by the bridge, and there, as always, stood my father's house, with open windows through which I could hear our parrot chortling, and my heart pounded for joy, and for all the memories. I went through the cool, dark stone gateway, and down the wide stone walk, and hurried up the stairs. My father came down them to meet me. He kissed me, smiled, and patted me on the back. Then he led me silently by the hand to the upper door of the vestibule, where my mother was waiting, and took me in her arms. Then the maid Christine came running up and shook hands with me, and I went on into the living room, where the coffee stood ready, and greeted Polly, the parrot. He recognised me at once, climbed from the edge of his cage roof onto my finger, and lowered his beautiful grey head for me to stroke. The room was freshly papered, but otherwise everything remained the same, from the portraits of grandparents and the china closet, to the tall clock with its old-fashioned decorations of lilacs. The cups stood ready on the set table, and in my cup was a small bunch of mignonette, which I took out and stuck in my lapel. Opposite me sat my mother, looking at me and putting soft rolls onto my plate. She admonished me not to talk so much that I should forget to eat, and then she herself asked me one question after another that I had to answer. Father listened in silence, stroked his beard, which had turned grey, and looked at me through his glasses with an air of kind scrutiny. And, as I reported my experiences, acts, and successes without being excessively modest, I could not help feeling that I must thank these two for the best of all. 
This first day I wanted to see nothing but my dear old home. There would be time enough tomorrow and later on for everything else. And so, after the coffee, we went through all the rooms, through kitchen, corridors and bedchambers, and almost everything was just as it had been before. <clears throat> the few innovations I discovered already seemed old and obvious to the others, and they disputed over whether these changes had not already been made in my day. In the small garden that lies on the slope of the hill, between ivied walls, the afternoon sun fell upon neat paths and rough limestone edgings, upon the half-filled water barrel and the beautiful, vivid flower beds, so that everything seemed smiling. We sat down on the veranda in comfortable chairs. The sunlight flowed, muted, warm and pale green, through the large transparent leaves of the syringa. A few bees that had lost their way buzzed about, heavy and intoxicated. In gratitude for my return, Father bared his head and said that the Lord's Prayer. We stood still with folded arms, and though the unusual solemnity dampened my spirits slightly, I nevertheless heard the old and sacred words with gladness, and I spoke the Amen gratefully. Then father went to his study. My brother and sister ran off, and the whole house became quiet. I sat alone at the table with my mother. This was the moment I had long been looking forward to, and also dreading. For though my homecoming was glad and welcome, my life in the past several years had not been entirely pure and innocent. Now, Mother looked at me with her beautiful warm eyes and read my face. Perhaps she was considering what to say and what to ask about. I sat in embarrassed silence, playing with my fingers. I was prepared for an examination that, on the whole, would not be altogether inglorious, but which, in certain of its details, was bound to make me feel abashed. For a while she looked quietly into my eyes. Then she took my hand in her fine, small ones. Do you still pray a little, sometimes? she asked softly. Not any more of late, I had to say, and she gave me a slightly troubled look. You'll learn how again, she said then, and I said, perhaps. Then she was silent for a while and at last asked, but you do want to be an upright man, don't you? To that I could say yes. And now, instead of putting the awkward question to me, she stroked my hand and nodded to me in a manner that meant she trusted me, even though I made no confessional. And then she asked me about my clothes and laundry, for in the past two years I had taken care of myself and no longer sent things home to be laundered and repaired. Tomorrow we will look through everything together, she said after I made my report. 
and with that, the interrogation was over. Soon afterward, my sister came out to the veranda and asked me to come into the house with her. In the parlour, she sat down at the piano and took out the music we'd played long ago, which I had neither sung nor heard for so long, but had not forgotten. We sang the songs of Schubert and Schumann, and then we set to singing German and foreign folk songs until it was time for supper. My sister set the table, while I talked with the parrot, who was supposed to be a male in spite of his name, Polly. He could say a great many things. He mimicked our voices and our laughter, and accorded each of us a special and precisely graduated degree of friendliness. He was most intimate with my father, who could do anything he wanted with him. Then came my brother, then Mama, then myself, and last of all my sister, of whom Polly was a little cherry. Polly was the only pet in our house, and was just like one of the children, having been with us for twenty years. He loved conversation, laughter and music, but not in his immediate vicinity. When he was alone and heard people talking animatedly in the adjoining room, he listened sharply, joined in the conversation and laughed in his good-natured, ironic fashion. And sometimes, when he sat alone and quite unobserved on his climbing bars, when everything was silent and the sun shone warmly in the room, he would begin in deep, contented tones to hail life and praise God. His song sounded like a flute. It was solemn, warm and heartfelt, like the self-forgetful singing of a child at play. After supper, I spent half an hour watering the garden. When I came in again, wet and dirty, I heard from the walk a half-familiar girl's voice speaking inside the house. Quickly, I wiped my hands on my handkerchief and entered. There, in a lavender dress and a big straw hat, sat a tall, beautiful girl. When she looked up, looked at me, and held out her hand, I recognised Helen Kurtz, a friend of my sister's, with whom I had once upon a time been in love. So, you still recognise me? I asked smugly. Lottie told me you'd come home, she said pleasantly. But I would have liked it better if she had simply said yes. She had grown tall and very pretty indeed. I could think of nothing else to say and went over to the flowers by the window while she chatted with Mother and Lottie. My eyes gazed out on the street, and my fingers toyed with the geranium leaves, but my thoughts were elsewhere. I saw a slate-cold winter evening. I was ice-skating on the river between the high alder bushes, sweeping in timorous semicircles, as I followed at a distance the figure of a girl who scarcely knew how to skate, and was being guided by another girl. Her voice, grown much fuller and deeper than it had been, now sounded familiar, and yet almost unknown to me. She had become a young lady, and I felt not in the least her equal in age and station. Rather, it was as though I was still fifteen years old. 
When she left, I shook hands with her again, but made a needlessly low and ironic bow and said, Good night, Miss Kurtz. So she's back home again, I asked afterward. Where else should she be? Lottie wondered, and I preferred to drop the subject. At ten o'clock sharp, the house was locked up and my parents went to bed. As he kissed me goodnight, my father laid his arm about my shoulders and said softly, It's good to have you back home again. Are you glad, too? Everybody went to bed. The maid, too, had bid us goodnight some time before, and after doors had opened and shut a few times, a profound nocturnal silence settled over the entire house. Beforehand, I had got myself a mug of beer and chilled it. I now set it on the table in my room, and as smoking was not permitted in the living rooms of our house, I filled a pipe now and lit it. My two windows looked out over the dark, quiet courtyard, from which stone steps led uphill to the garden. Up above I saw the pines silhouetted black against the sky, and above them the stars twinkling. I stayed up for more than an hour, watching the moths fitting around my lamp and slowly blowing my clouds of smoke toward the open windows. Long, silent processions of images passed through my mind, countless memories of home and boyhood days, a vast, silent host rising and glimmering and vanishing again like waves on the surface of a lake. Next morning I put on my best suit as a token of respect for my native town and my many old acquaintances, and to make it quite clear that I had done well, and not come home a poor devil. Above our narrow valley the summer sky was radiantly blue. A haze of dust rose from the white avenues. In front of the nearby post office stood the mail carriages from the forest villages. And in the street, small children played with marbles and softballs. My first stroll took me over the old stone bridge, the oldest structure in the town. I contemplated the small Gothic chapel on the bridge, which in former days I had raced past hundreds of times. Then I leaned on the parapet and looked up and down the swift green river. The cosy old mill with the white wheel painted on its gable end had vanished, and in its place stood a large new brick building. But otherwise nothing was changed, and, as of old, innumerable geese and ducks swam about on the water and waddled on the banks. On the other side of the bridge I encountered my first acquaintance, a schoolmate, who had gone into the tanning trade. He was wearing a shiny orange-yellow leather apron. He gave me a groping, uncertain look, but did not quite recognise me. Pleased, I nodded to him and strolled on, while he looked back after me, and kept trying to recall.
At the window of his workshop I greeted the coppersmith with the marvellous white beard. Then I looked in on the turner, who let the belt of his lathe hum and offered me a pinch of snuff. Then came the market square with its big fountain and the quaint town hall arcade. The bookseller's shop was there, and though the old fellow had long ago given me a bad character because of my ordering Heiner's works, I dropped in and brought a pencil and picture postcard. From here, it had never been far to the school buildings, and so I took a turn, took a look at the old barracks as I passed. At the gates I scented the familiar, nervous smell of schoolrooms, and scurried on with a sigh of relief to the church and the personage. By the time I'd drifted around a few more of the narrow streets and had been shaved at the barber's, it was ten o'clock, time to pay my visit to Uncle Matthias. I went through the handsome courtyard into his fine house, dusted off my trousers in the cool passageway, and knocked on the door of the living quarters. Inside I found my aunt and her two daughters sewing. Uncle was already at his office. Everything in this house breathed a spirit of pure, old-fashioned industry, a bit austere and emphatically utilitarian, but also serene and reliable. <clears throat> it was a house of eternal sweeping, dusting, washing, sewing, knitting and spinning, and nevertheless the daughters found time to make music, and do it very well. Both played the piano and sang, and if they did not know the more modern composers, they were all the more familiar with Handel, Bach, Haydn and Mozart. Aunt jumped up to greet me. Her daughters finished their stitches first and then shook hands with me. To my amazement, I was treated quite like a guest of honour and taken into the visitor's room. Moreover, Aunt Berta could not be dissuaded from offering me a glass of wine and assorted pastries. Then she sat down opposite me in one of the company chairs. The daughters stayed at their work in the other room. This time I was partly subjected to the examination that my kind mother had spared me yesterday. But here, too, I was not required to embellish an unsatisfactory state of affairs in the telling. My aunt was passionately interested in the personalities of certain well-known preachers, and she questioned me at length about the churches and ministers in all the towns I had lived in. A few small embarrassments cropped up, but with good will we glossed over these and joined in lamenting the death some years before of a famous prelate whose sermons I might have been able to hear in Stuttgart if he had lived. Then the conversation turned to my fortunes, experiences and prospects, and we decided that I had had good luck, and was well started. Who would have thought it six years ago, she remarked. Was I really so badly off then? I could not help asking. No, I wouldn't exactly say that, but still your parents were really worried then. So was I, I wanted to say. But on the whole she was right, and I did not want to revive the quarrels of the past. I guess that is true, I therefore said, 
and nodded soberly. I gather you have tried quite a number of trades. <laughs> yes, certainly, aunt, and I regret none of them. For that matter, I don't intend to keep my present one indefinitely. You don't say. Do you mean that? When you've just got yourself such a good position, almost two hundred marks a month? Why, that is splendid for a young man. Who knows how long it will last, aunt? What a way to talk. It will last all right if you stick right to it. Well, let us hope so. But now I must go upstairs to see Aunt Lydia, and then drop in on Uncle at the office. So goodbye for now, Aunt Berta. Yes, adieu. It has been a great pleasure to me. Be sure to come round again. Of course. I bade goodbye to the two girls in the living room, and from the doorway called another farewell to Aunt. Then I climbed the bright, wide staircase. And if before I had had the feeling that I was breathing an old-fashioned atmosphere, I now encountered one positively antique. In two tiny rooms upstairs lived an octogenarian great-aunt who received me with the delicacy and gallantry of bygone times. There were water-cooler portraits of great-great-uncles, antimacassars, purses with bouquets of flowers and landscapes embroidered on them in beads, oval picture frames and a fragrance of sandalwood and delicate old perfume. Aunt Lydia was wearing a purple dress cut very plain, except for her nearsightedness and a faint shaking of her head. She was amazingly youthful and spry. She drew me down on a narrow settee, and instead of talking about the distant past, asked me about my life and my ideas. She was interested in everything, attentive to everything I said. Old as she was, and remote and ancestral through her rooms, she had gone on frequent travels up to only two years before. Though she did not wholly approve of it, she had a clear and by no means entirely unfavourable conception of the contemporary world, and she liked to refresh and fill out her view of it. At the same time, she possessed a charming and graceful adroitness in conversation. When you sat with her, the talk flowed on without pauses, and was somehow always interesting and pleasant. When I left, she kissed me and dismissed me with a gesture of blessing which I have never seen anyone else employ. I looked up Uncle Matthias in his office, where he sat bent over newspapers and catalogues. I had made up my mind not to sit down and to leave shortly, and Uncle made it easy for me. So, you're back in the country again? he asked. Yes, back again. It's been a long time. And now you are doing quite well, I hear. Yes, quite well, thank you. You will drop in and say hello to my wife, won't you? I have already been to see her. Oh, you have. Good boy. 
Well, then, that's fine. Whereupon he lowered his gaze to the catalogue again and held out his hand toward me. As he had picked approximately the right direction, I shook his hand quickly and went out with a contented feeling. Now the official visits were done with, and I went home to dine. In my honour there were rice and roast veal. After dinner my brother Fritz took me aside and led me up to his room, where my butterfly collection hung on the wall under glass. My sister wanted to chat with us, and stuck her head in at the door, but Fritz importantly waved her away. "'No, we have a secret,' he said. "'Then he scrutinised my face, "'and when he saw me looking sufficiently curious, "'he drew a box out from under the bed. "'The lid of the box was covered with a sheet of tin "'and weighed down by several good-sized stones. "'Guess what's inside,' he said, "'in a low, crafty voice.' I thought about our former hobbies and experiments and guessed. Lizards? No. Ring snakes? Not a bit. Caterpillars? No, nothing alive. No? Then why is the box shut so tight? There are things more dangerous than caterpillars. Dangerous. Aha. Powder? Instead of replying, he removed the lid and I saw inside the box a good-sized arsenal. Packages of powder of varying fineness. Charcoal, tinder, fuses, lumps of sulphur, boxes of saltpetre, and iron fillings. Well... What do you say? I knew that my father would have been unable to sleep a wink if he had known that a box of such materials was stored in the boy's room. But Fritz was glowing so with joy, and the pleasure of having sprung his surprise that I expressed this thought only by a mild remark and instantly accepted his reassurances. For myself, I had a certain responsibility for all this and I was looking forward to a fireworks display as eagerly as an apprentice to quitting time. "'Will you go in with me?' Fritz asked. "'Of course. We can set the stuff off at night in gardens here and there, eh?' "'Sure we can. Recently I set off a grenade with half a pound of powder in it. Out on the meadows outside of town, it boomed like an earthquake.' But now I'm out of money, and we still need all sorts of stuff. I'll contribute three marks. That's a boy! Then we'll have rockets and giant crackers. But you'll be careful, eh? Careful? Nothing's ever happened to me. This was a reference to a bad accident I had had with fireworks at the age of fourteen. It had missed by a hair, costing me my eyesight and my life. Now he showed me the supplies and the various pieces he had started. 
initiated me into the mysteries of some of his new experiments and inventions, and stirred up my curiosity about others that he intended to show me, and was keeping a deep, dark secret for the present. This took up the whole of his noon hour, and then he had to go back to work. After he left, I had no sooner covered up the sinister box and stowed it away under the bed than Lottie came in and asked me to come for a walk with her and Papa. "'How does Fritz strike you?' Father said. "'He's grown up, hasn't he?' "'Oh, yes.' "'And is a good deal more serious, don't you think? "'He's beginning to outgrow his childish pranks, at least.' Yes, now all my children are grown up. Getting there anyway, I thought, and felt a bit ashamed. But it was a glorious afternoon. The poppies flamed in the grain fields. The red corn cockles smiled. We walked along slowly, talking of nothing but enjoyable matters. Well-known paths and orchards, the familiar margins of woods, greeted me and beckoned to me. Times past rose up once more, sweet and radiant, as though everything had been good and perfect in those days. Now I must ask you something, Lottie said. I have been thinking of inviting a friend of mine here for a few weeks. Have you? From where? From Ulm. She's two years older than me. What do you think? Now that we have you here, that's the main thing, and you must tell me right out if her visit would bother you. What's she like? She's taken the teacher's examination. Oh, Lord. No, no, not old lord at all. She's very nice and certainly no blue stocking, not at all. In fact, she hasn't gone in for teaching. Why not? You'll have to ask that yourself. Then she is coming. Stupid, it depends on you. If you think you'd rather have just the family altogether, she can come some other time. That's why I'm asking you. I'll toss a coin. If you feel that way about it, say yes right off. All right, yes. Good, then I'll write to her today. And send her my regards. That will hardly overwhelm her with pleasure. Incidentally, what's her name? Anna Amberg. Amberg is nice, and Anna is a saint's name, but a dull one, if only because you can't make a better nickname out of it. Would you like Anastasia better? Yes, that could be shortened to Stacy or Stasel. Meanwhile, we had reached the top of the hill, which, from one terrace to the next, had seemed almost upon us, but had kept receding. Now, from a rock, we looked down across the queerly foreshortened, steeply sloping fields through which we had climbed to the town far below in the narrow valley. 
behind us on rolling land the black pine forest ran for mile upon mile broken here and there by narrow meadows or a strip of grain field that gleamed in sharp contrast to the dull colour of the woods really no other place is so beautiful as this i said pensively my father smiled and looked at me it's your homeland son and it is beautiful that is true is your homeland more beautiful papa no but wherever your childhood was everything is beautiful and sacred haven't you ever been homesick my boy oh yes now and then i have been Nearby was a wooded spot, where in my boyhood days I had often captured robin redbreasts. And a bit farther on, there must be the remains of a stone fort that we children had once built. But father was tired, and after a short rest we turned back and descended the hill by another road. I wished I could find out a little more about Helen Kurtz, but I dared not bring up her name for fear of exposing myself. In the peacefulness and idleness of being home, and with the happy prospect of several weeks of a lazy holiday before me, my youthful heart was beginning to be stirred by longings and plans for romance. All that was needed was a handy pretext. But that was just what I lacked, and the more I was haunted by the image of that beautiful young lady, the more difficult it became for me to ask without embarrassment about her and her circumstances. As we walked slowly homeward, we gathered large, large bunches of flowers from the margins of the fields. This was an art I had not practised for a long time. In our household, Mother had established the custom of keeping not only potted plants, but also fresh flowers on all the tables and chests of drawers. In the course of years a great many simple vases, glasses and jars had been assembled, and we children scarcely ever returned from a walk without bringing home flowers, ferns or small branches of trees and shrubs. It seemed to me, that I had not even looked at wild flowers for years, for they look very different when you notice them in passing with an artistic pleasure, as islands of colour in a world of green, and when you kneel or stoop to examine them singly and choose the finest for picking. I discovered tiny hidden plants whose blossoms reminded me of outings in my school days, and others that my mother particularly liked or had given special private names. These same flowers were all still to be found, and each of them awakened a memory. Out of every blue or yellow calyx, my joyous childhood looked up at me, looked with unwanted dearness and nearness into my eyes. In what we called the salon of our house stood several tall cases of plain pine. Stuffed into these, standing or lying in confused heaps, was a horde of books dating back several generations. They were not in any kind of order, and were rather neglected. As a small boy, I had found and read here Robinson Crusoe, 
and Gulliver's Travels, in yellowed editions with gay woodcuts. Then I had turned to old stories of seafarers and explorers, and later to a good many more literary works, such as Sivart, Story of a Monastery, The New Amadis, The Sorrows of Werther, and Ocean. Later still, I took up the many books by Jean Paul, Stilling, Walter Scott, Platon, Balzac, and Victor Hugo, as well as the small edition of Lavater's Physion physiognomy and numerous sets of pretty little almanacs, pocket-sized booklets and popular calendars, the older ones illustrated with copper engravings by Chorowicki, the later ones by Ludwig Richter, and the Swiss ones with woodcuts by Distelli. Now on evenings, when there were no family music-making, or when I was not manufacturing firecrackers with Fritz, I could take one or another volume from this treasure store into my room and blow the smoke of my pipe into the yellowed pages over which my grandparents had sighed, raved enthusiastically and pondered. My brother had gutted and consumed for his fireworks one volume of Jean Paul's Titan, when I had read the first two volumes and was hunting for the third, he confessed his crime, but claimed that the volume had been in bad shape anyway. These evenings were always pleasant and entertaining. We sang. Lottie played the piano and Fritz the fiddle. Mama told stories of our childhood. Polly fluted away in his cage and refused to go to bed. Father rested at the window, or pasted away at a scrapbook for his small nephews. But I did not at all feel it as a disturbing note when one evening Helen Kurtz dropped in again to chat for half an hour. Again and again I looked at her with a sense of amazement at how beautiful and perfect she had become. When she arrived, the candles on the piano were almost burned down, and she joined in the singing of a two-voiced song. But I sang very low, so that I could hear every note of her rich voice. I stood behind her, and looked through her brown hair at the candlelight gleaming golden, saw how her shoulders moved slightly as she sang, and thought how delicious it would be to run my hand just a little over her hair. Without much logic, I had the feeling that we were linked by certain memories of former days, because I had been in love with her around the time of my confirmation. Now her casual friendliness was a mild disappointment to me, for it did not occur to me that the relationship had existed only on my side, and that she had known nothing about it. Afterward, when she took her leave, I picked up my hat and walked to the glass door with her. Good night, she said, but instead of taking her hand, I said, I'll walk you home. She laughed. Oh, no need of that, thank you. You know it isn't customary here. Isn't it? I said, and let her pass. But then my sister took her blue ribbon straw hat and called out, I'll go along too. <clears throat> and the three of us descended the stairs.
I eagerly opened the heavy front gate, and we stepped out into the warm dusk and walked slowly through the town, across the bridge in the market square, and up to the steep outlying hill where Helena's parents lived. The two girls chattered away like starlings, and I listened and was glad to be with them, and one member of a trio. Sometimes I walked more slowly, pretending I was looking up at the sky for weather signs, and lagged a step behind, so that I could see how straight and freely she carried her dark head, and how firmly and evenly her slender body stepped forward. At her house, Helena shook hands with us and went in. I saw her hat gleaming for a moment in the dark vestibule before the door clapped shut. <laughs> yes, Lottie said, she really is a fine girl, isn't she? And there's something so sweet about her. There certainly is. How do things stand with your girlfriend? Is she coming soon? I wrote to her yesterday. Oh, I see. Well, shall we go home the same way? Oh, we might go by the way of the gardens at that. We walked down the narrow lane between the garden fences. It was already dark, and we had to watch where we were going, for there were many sagging plank steps on the path, and loose pickets leaning out from the fences. We had almost reached our garden and could see the living room lamp burning inside the house. Suddenly, a low voice said, Psst! Psst! And my sister was frightened. But it was our brother, Fritz, who had hidden in the garden to meet us. Stand still and watch, he called out to us. Then he lit a fuse with a sulphur match and came over to us. Fireworks again! Lottie scolded him. There won't be much of a bang, Fritz assured her. Just watch, it's my own invention. We waited until the fuse had burned down. Then it began to crackle and shoot out small reluctant sparks like wet gunpowder. Fritz was glowing with pleasure. Now it will come in a second. First white fire, then a small bang and a red flame. Then a pretty blue one. It did not turn out as he expected. Instead, after some jerking and shooting of sparks, the precious invention went up all at once with a loud boom and blast pressure and a white cloud of smoke. Lottie laughed and Fritz was unhappy. As I tried to console him, the dense smoke drifted away with solemn deliberation over the dark gardens. We did get just a glimpse of the blue, Fritz began, and I admitted that. Then, almost tearfully, he described in detail the making of his pyrotechnical triumph and how it should have gone off. We'll try it again, I said. Tomorrow? No, Fritz. Let's make it next week. I might just as well have said tomorrow, but my mind was full of thoughts of Helena Kurtz and was lost in the dream of some wonderful happiness that might dawn for me tomorrow. Perhaps that she would visit again in the evening, or that she might suddenly take a liking to me. 
In short, I was now engrossed in things that seemed to me more important and more exciting than all the fireworks in the world. We crossed the garden to the house and found our parents at the backgammon board in the living room. It was also simple and natural and could not be any different. And yet everything has turned out so differently that today it all seems infinitely remote to me. For today my old home no longer exists for me. The old house, the garden and the veranda, the big familiar rooms, furniture and pictures, the parrot and his big cage, the dear old town and the whole valley have become strange to me and no longer belong to me. Mother and father are dead and my childhood home is nothing but memories and homesickness. No road leads me back there any longer. Around eleven o'clock at night, when I was sitting over a fat volume of Jean Paul, my small oil lamp began to grow dim. It sputtered and made tiny anxious noises. The flame became red and sooty, and when I examined it and turned the wick up and down, I saw that it was out of oil. I felt sorry about the fine novel I was reading, but it would not do to go groping around in the dark house now looking for oil. And so I blew out the smoking lamp and went to bed in a barred temper. Outside a warm wind had sprung up and was blowing gently through the pines and the lilac brushes. In the grassy yard down below a cricket was chirping. I could not fall asleep and again begin thinking of Helene. I could hope for no more from this well-bred beautiful girl than to go on looking at her with vain longing, and that was as painful as it was pleasurable. I felt hot and wretched when I imagined her face, the sound of her rich voice and her walk, the firm and energetic rhythm of her footsteps as she had walked down the street and across the market square this evening. Finally I jumped out of the bed. It was I was much too warm and restive to sleep. I went to the window and looked out. Among wispy strips of cloud the waning moon floated pallidly. The cricket was still singing in the yard. What I would have liked best was to go out walking for an hour or so, but our front door was always locked at ten o'clock. And if it ever had to be opened and used after that hour, this always signified an event, something unusual, disturbing and adventurous. I did not even know where the door key hung. I remembered again bygone years when, as an adolescent, I had sometimes thought our home life was virtual slavery. And at night, with a guilty conscience and adventurous defiance, I had slipped out of the house to have a mug of beer at a tavern that stayed open late. To get out, I had used the back door to the garden, which was fastened only by bolts. Then I would clamber over the fence and reach the street by way of the narrow lane between the adjoining gardens. I put on my trousers. The air was so warm that no more clothing was necessary. Took my shoes in my hand and stole out of the house barefoot. 
clambering over the garden fence, I set out on a slow stroll through the sleeping town, walking upstream along the river, which flowed along with muted whispers and played with small quivering reflections of the moonlight. To be up and about outdoors at night, beneath the silent sky and beside quietly flowing water, it is always mysterious and stirs the soul to its very depths. At such times we are closer to our origins. We feel a kinship with animals and plants, feel dim memories of a primeval life before houses and towns were built, when man, the homeless wanderer, could regard the woods, streams, mountains, wolves and hawks as his equals and could love them as friends or hate them as deadly foes. Night also removes our customary sense of community life, when lights are no longer burning and human voices can no longer be heard. One who is still awake feels solitary and sees himself parted from others and thrown upon his own resources. Then that most terrible of all human feelings, that of being inescapably alone, of having to live alone and to taste and endure alone sorrow, fear and death, underlies our every thought, to the young and healthy only an intimation and a warning, to the feeble a real dread. <clears throat> I too felt something of this, at least my ill humour faded and gave way to quiet contemplation. It pained me to think that beautiful, desirable Helena would probably never think of me with emotions like these I felt towards her. But I also knew that the grief of an unrequited love was not going to kill me, and I had a vague premonition that life, mysterious life, held darker abysses and worse vicissitudes than a young man's vacation sorrows. Nevertheless, my stirred-up blood remained warm, and, independently of my own will, created out of the sluggish breeze caressing hands and a girl's brown hair, so that this walk late at night made me neither tired nor sleepy. So I walked over the row and grass of the pale fields on the banks of the river, removed my light clothing and plunged into the cool water. The swift current instantly forced me to put up a stiff resistance. I swam upstream for a quarter of an hour. Depression and melancholy streamed off me with the refreshing river water. Cooled and somewhat tired, I found my clothes again, slipped them, slipped into them still wet and returned home and to bed in a light, tranquil frame of mind. After the excitement of the first few days, I gradually fell in with the quiet normality of life at home. How I had roamed around in the outside world, drifting from city to city, knowing many different sorts of people, sometimes working, sometimes dreaming, sometimes studying, and sometimes spending nights carousing, living for a while on bread and milk, and then for a while on books and cigars, a different person every month. And here, everything was the same as it had been ten and twenty years before. Here, the days and weeks ran on in a serene, even tempo, 
and I, who had become estranged from all this, and accustomed to an unstable life of variegated experiences, fitted into this again, as if I had never been aware. I took an interest in people and things that I had completely forgotten for years, and missed nothing of all that the outside world had meant to me. The hours and days ran along for me as easily as summer clouds without leaving a trace behind. Each was a colourful picture, and each a floating emotion rising in a rush of music, sounding forth and soon fading dreamily away. I watered the garden, sang with Lottie, firecrackered with Fritz, chatted with Mother about foreign places and with Father about the latest events in the world. I read Goethe and Jens Peter Jacobson, and one thing passed into another and went well with the other, and nothing seriously mattered either way. At the time, what seriously mattered to me was Helena Kurtz and my feelings for her. But that too existed like everything else. It moved me for hours at a time, then was submerged again for hours. Constant alone was my pulsating, joyous feeling of being alive, the feeling of a swimmer who moves along in smooth water, unhurried and aimless, without effort and without a care. In the woods, the jay shrieked and the bilberries ripened. In the garden, roses bloomed and fiery nastiturns. I took part in it all, thought the world glorious and wondered what life would be like when eventually I, too, would become a man, old and sensible. One afternoon a large raft came floating through the town. I jumped aboard it, lay down on a pile of boards, and floated down river for a few hours, past farms and villages and under bridges, while above me the air quivered and sultry clouds seethed with faint thunder, and under me the cool water of the river slapped and laughed, fresh and foamy. I imagined that Helene was alone. I had abducted her, and we were sitting hand in hand and showing each other the splendours of the world from here all the way downstream to Holland. When I left the raft far down in the valley, I jumped short and landed in the water up to my chest. But on the warm walk home, my steaming clothes dried on my body, and when I reached the first houses of the town again, dusty and weary after my long tramp, I met Helena Kurtz wearing a red blouse. I lifted my hat and she nodded and I thought again of my daydream, of her travelling down the river with me hand in hand, and speaking to me as an intimate, and then for the rest of that evening it all seemed hopeless to me, and I thought myself a silly dreamer and stargazer. Nevertheless, before going to sleep, I smoked my handsome pipe, with two grazing deer painted on its porcelain bowl, and read Wilhelm Meister until after eleven o'clock. The following evening, at about half-past eight, I went up to the pinnacle with my brother Fritz. We had a heavy packet with us, which we took turns carrying. 
It contained a dozen giant crackers, six sky rockets, three large grenades, and a variety of small things. The air was tepid, blue-tinted, and filled with shreds of cloud in motion, which drifted gently away over the church tower and the peaks of the hills, frequently covering the pallid first stars of evening. <clears throat> At the pinnacle we first rested for a short while after our climb, and I looked down on our narrow river valley, lying below in its pale twilight co colours. As I looked at the town and the next village, at the bridges and mill dam and the narrow shrub-lined river, the twilight mood and the thought of that beautiful girl stole upon me together. I would have preferred to be dreaming there alone and waiting for the moon, but that couldn't be, for my brother had already unpacked and startled me by exploding two crackers from behind my back. He had linked them with a string, tied them to a pole, and held them out close to my ears. I was a little annoyed, but Fritz laughed so uproariously and was so pleased with himself that I was quickly infected and joined in. In quick succession, we set off three extra powerful grenades and listened to the tremendous reports booming up and down the valley and dying away in long rolling echoes. Then came more firecrackers, squibs, and a large Catherine wheel, and to finish it off, we slowly sent one after another of our fine skyrockets mounting into the now black night sky. You know, a real good rocket like that is almost like worshipping God, said my brother, who sometimes liked to use figures of speech. Oh, like singing a beautiful song, don't you think? It's so solemn. On the way home, we tossed our last firecracker into the shringler's yard at the nasty yard dog who howled in terror and went on barking ferociously after us for a quarter of an hour. We came home high-spirited and black-fingered, like two young rascals who have been up to all sorts of tricks. And to our parents, we sang the praises of our lovely evening walk, the view of the valley and the star-strewn sky. One morning, while I was up at the window cleaning out my pipe, Lottie came running up and called, Well, my girlfriend is arriving today at eleven. Anna Amberg. Yes, you'll come with me to meet her, won't you? All right. I was not particularly pleased at the prospect of this guest, to whom I had not given a thought. But there was nothing to do about it, and so towards eleven o'clock I went to the railroad station with my sister. We arrived too early, and walked up and down in front of the station. Perhaps she will be riding second class, Lottie said. I stared incredulously at her. She might be. Her family are well-to-do, and though she hasn't any heirs. I shuddered. I imagined a fashionable lady with mincing manners and a pile of baggage stepping out of the second-class car and finding my father's comfortable home pitiful and myself not at all good enough for her. 
If she's travelling second class, she may just as well travel right past here for all I care. Lottie was annoyed and was going to answer me sharply. But then the train pulled in and stopped, and Lottie ran quickly toward it. I followed her at a leisurely pace and saw her girlfriend getting out of a third-class car, armed with a grey silk umbrella, a travelling rug, and a modest suitcase. Anna, this is my brother. I said hello, and because in spite of the third class I didn't know what she would think of my taking her suitcase myself, light as it was, I beckoned the porter and handed it to him. Then I walked along into the city beside the two girls, wondering at how much they must have to tell each other. But I took a liking to Miss Amberg. Of course, I was a bit disappointed that she was not especially pretty. But to make up for that, there was something pleasant about her face and voice that was soothing and awakened confidence. I can still see the way my mother received the two of them at the glass door. Mother had a knack for reading people's faces, and anyone whom she welcomed with her smile after a first searching look could be prepared for a good time in her home. I can still see how she looked into Anna Amberg's eyes, and then nodded to her and gave her both hands, taking her into her heart and making her at home without saying a word. My suspicion that the stranger would be an intruder promptly vanished, for she took the proffered hands and friendliness with quiet cordiality, and from the very first hour became part of our household. With all the acumen of my young years, I decided that first day that this pleasant girl had an innocent, natural serenity. She might not know too much about life, but she was a worthwhile chum. I had a dim suspicion of the existence of a higher and worthier serenity that some can acquire out of the trouble and suffering, and some <clears throat> never acquire at all. But this I did not really know from experience. For the time being, I remained unaware that our guest possessed this rare kind of tranquil cheerfulness. Girls with whom one could chum around and talk about life and literature were not often met with in my sphere of life in those days. Up to now I had regarded my sister's girlfriends either as objects to fall in love with or as creatures of no importance at all. To associate with a young lady without constraint, and to be able to chat with her about all sorts of things, as if she were one of my own friends, was something new and delightful to me. In spite of being on equal terms with her, I sensed in her voice, language, and way of thinking the feminine tone, and I found this warm and sweet. Quite incidentally, I was rather abashed to notice how quietly and skilfully, and with what absence of fuss, Anna fitted herself into our life, and accustomed herself to our ways. For all of the friends I had ever brought home as vacation guests had always made a bit of a to-do and brought with them an alien atmosphere. Even I myself had been louder and more self-important than was needful in the first days after my homecoming. At times, 
I was amazed at how little special consideration Anna seemed to require. In conversation, I could even be almost rude without seeing any sign that she was offended. How different it was with Helena Kurtz, by contrast. Toward her, even in the most animated talk, I would not have dared to use anything but the most careful and respectful phrases. As it happened, Helena Kurtz came to see us quite often during this time, and seemed to be fond of my sister's friend. One day we were all invited to a gathering in the garden at Uncle Matthias's. Coffee and cake were served, and afterwards gooseberry wine. In the intervals we played harmless children's games or strolled decorously along the garden paths, whose neatness and precision of themselves imposed dignified behaviour. It was strange to me to see Helene and Anna together, and to talk with both at once. With Helena Kurtz, who was always looking wonderful, I could only talk about superficial matters, but I did so in the prissiest tone, while with Anna I could chat about even the most interesting subjects without any agitation or sense of strain. And while I was grateful to her, finding conversation with her relaxing and reassuring, I kept glancing away from her to the other, the far prettier girl whose looks ravished me and yet always left me unsatisfied. My brother Fritz was wretchedly bored. After he had eaten as much cake as he could hold, he suggested several rougher games, some we would not enter into, and others we quickly abandoned. In between he drew me aside and complained that the afternoon was terribly insipid. When I shrugged, he alarmed me by confessing that he had a firecracker in his pocket, which he intended to set off later, when the girls would, as usual, take their time about bidding each other goodbye. I had to argue hard to dissuade him. He then took himself off to the remotest corner of the big garden and lay down under the gooseberry bushes, but I betrayed him by laughing with the others over his childhood bad behaviour though I was sorry for him and understood his feelings very well. My two cousins, Aunt Bertha's daughters, were quite easy to handle. They were altogether unspoilt and drank in with grateful eagerness jokes that had long since lost all sheen of newness. Uncle had withdrawn immediately after the coffee, Aunt Bertha stayed with Lottie most of the time. She was quite willing to dismiss me after I had had a few words with her on the art of putting up berries, which made her very pleased with me. And so I hung around the two girls, and in pauses of the conversation wondered why it is so much more difficult to talk with a girl you are in love with. I should have liked very much to pay some kind of homage to Helena, but I could think of nothing. Finally, I cut two of the many roses in the garden and gave one to Helene and the other to Anna Amberg. That was the last entirely unclouded day of my holiday. The following day, I heard from a casual acquaintance that Helena Kurtz had recently been a frequent visitor to such and such a family and that an engagement would soon be announced. He mentioned this incidentally 
among many other items of news, and I was careful not to let on that it meant anything to me. But even though it was only a rumour, I had in any case scarcely dared to hope for much from Helena, and I was now convinced that she was out of reach entirely. I returned home utterly unhinged and fled to my room. Under the circumstances, and with my youthful resiliency, I could not go on sorrowing for very long. But for several days I refused all amusement. I took long, lonely walks in the woods, hung around the house feeling sad and vacant, and spent evenings behind closed windows improvising on the violin. "'Is something the matter, my boy?' Papa said to me, laying his hand on my shoulder. I didn't sleep well, I replied quite truthfully. I could not manage to tell him any more. But he said something then that I have often recalled since. A sleepless night, he said, is always a bad business, but it is endurable if we have good thoughts. When we lie still and do not sleep, we easily become vexed and turn our mind to vexatious thoughts. But we can also use our will and think good thoughts. Can we? I wondered. For in recent years I had begun to doubt the existence of free will. Yes, we can, father said emphatically. I can still remember distinctly the very hour when, after several days of being bitter and gloomy, I came to myself again, forgot my unhappiness and began living with the others and being gay again. We were all sitting in the living room over afternoon coffee, only Fritz was not there. The others were merry and talkative, but I kept quiet and did not participate, though secretly I was already feeling once more a need to chat and be lively. As young people will, I had surrounded my sorrow with a wall of silence and defiant obstinacy. After the considerate custom of our household, the others had let me alone and respected my obvious low spirits, and now I could not get up the courage to tear down my wall. A short while before, my feeling had been genuine and necessary. Now I was pretending it, boring myself with it. Moreover, I was ashamed, because my period of penance had lasted so short a time. Suddenly the tranquillity of our afternoon coffee was shattered by a jaunty flourish of trumpets, a bold and challenging run of rapid tones that made us all leap to our feet. "'There's a fire!' my sister called out in alarm. "'That would be a funny fire alarm.' Then soldiers are going to be quartered on us. Meanwhile, we had all rushed headlong to the windows. On the street, right in front of our house, we saw a swarm of children, and in the midst of them, seated on a huge white horse, was a trumpeter clad in scarlet, his horn and habit resplendent in the sunlight. This remarkable person looked up at all the windows as he trumpeted. He had a tanned face with a tremendous Hungarian mustachio. He went on frenziedly blowing his horn, mixing his themes with all sorts of random improvisations, until all the windows in the vicinity were crowded with onlookers. 
Then he put down his instrument, stroked his moustache, placed his left hand on his hip, while his right hand he reined in the restive horse, and delivered a speech. He was passing through, he said, and only for this one single day would his world-famous troop be stopping in the town. On the earnest pleas of the citizens, he would give a gala performance that very evening on the meadow near the bush. There would be trained horses, elegant balancing acts, and a grand pantomime as well. Admission for adults was only twenty pfennings, children ten. Having given his announcement and made sure that all understood, the rider blew one more blast of his shining horn and rode off, followed by the flock of children and a dense white cloud of dust. The laughter and the joyous anticipation that the circus rider's appearance had stirred up among us was a great help to me. I took advantage of the opportunity to drop my gloomy airs and join in the excitement of the others. Promptly, I invited the two girls to the evening performance. After some demurring, Papa gave us his permission, and then the three of us at once sauntered down to the meadow to take a look at the show. We found two men busy marking off a round arena and fencing it in with rope. Then they began putting up a high scaffolding. Nearby, on the steps of a green van, a frightfully fat old woman sat knitting. A pretty white poodle lay at her feet. While we were looking on, the rider returned from town, tied the white horse behind the van, removed his flashy red garments, and in shirt sleeves helped the others set up the scaffolding. "'Poor fellows,' Anna Amberg said. But I said I couldn't see what there was to pity about them. I took up the defence of the circus performers and praised their free, merry gypsy life to the skies. There was nothing I would like better than to go with them, I said, to walk the tightrope, and after the performance take the plate around. I'd love to see that, Anna laughed merrily. Whereupon I took my hat instead of a plate, made the gestures of a man taking up a collection, and humbly asked for a small contribution for the clown. Anna put her hand in her pocket, fumbled for a moment, and then threw a pfenning into my hat. I thanked her and dropped it into my vest pocket. The gaiety I had been repressing burst out of me with stunning force. I was high-spirited as a child all that day. Perhaps being aware of my own fickleness had something to do with this. In the evening, we took Fritz along and went to the performance. Even before we got there, we were a kindle with excitement and anticipatory pleasure. At the meadow, a crowd was surging aimlessly hither and thither. Children stood about, silent and blissful, their eyes wide with expectancy. Young rapscallions teased everybody and knocked one another over in front of people's feet. Onlookers settled down in the chestnut trees, and the constable strode around with his helmet on. Around the arena, a row of seats had been set up. In the centre of the arena stood a four-armed scaffold with cans of oil depending from its arms. These were now lit, 
the crowd pressed closer. The row of seats slowly filled, and above the arena and the many heads swayed the sooty red flame of the kerosene torches. We had found places on one side of the plank seats. A hand organ sounded out, and the ringmaster appeared in the arena with a small black pony. The clown came in with it and began a conversation punctuated by many slaps in the face which evoked loud applause. It began with the clowns asking some insolent question. Answering with a slap in the face, the ringmaster said, Do you think I'm a camel? To which the clown replied, Now, sir, I know quite well what the difference is between you and a camel. Oh, do you, clown? What is the difference? Why, ringmaster, a camel can work for a week without drinking. But you can drink for a week without working. Another slap, more applause. And so it went on. And even as I marvelled at the crudeness of the jokes and the simplicity of the grateful audience, I myself laughed along with everybody else. The pony made leaps, jumped over a bench, counted to twelve and played dead. Then came a poodle that jumped through hoops, danced on two legs and did military drill. In between, the clown constantly reappeared. Then came a goat, a very pretty little animal that balanced itself on a chair. Finally, the clown was asked whether all he could do was stand around and crack jokes. Whereupon he quickly threw off his bulky clown's costume, appeared in red tights, and climbed up the high rope. He was a handsome fellow, and did his act well. But even if he had not, it was a fine sight to see the red figure illuminated by the flames of the torches suspended far up under the dark blue night sky. Since the performance had taken longer than planned, the pantomime had to be cut out. We two had stayed out beyond our usual hour, and we set off for home at once. All during the performance, we had kept up a lively chatter. I had been sitting next to Anna Amberg, and though we had made nothing but casual remarks to each other, I had been aware all the time of her warm closeness, and now... On the way home, I missed it a little. Because I lay in my bed for a long time without falling asleep, I had time to think about that. And as I did so, I became uncomfortably and shamefully conscious of my faithlessness. How had I been able to give up beautiful Hellenic Kurtz so quickly? But... With the help of some sophistical reasoning, that night and during the next few days I settled the matter quite neatly and solved all the apparent contradictions to my own satisfaction. That night before finally going to sleep I lit the lamp again, found in my vest pocket the fanning coin that Anna had given me in jest, and studied it tenderly. It bore the date 1877. In other words, it was just as old as myself. I wrapped it in white paper, labelled it with the initials AA and the day's date, 
and placed it in the innermost slot of my wallet as a lucky penny. Half of my holiday, and the first half of a holiday is always longer than the second, had long since passed, and after a week of violent thunderstorms, the summer began to grow gradually older and wiser. But I, as though nothing else in the world was of any importance, steered lovelorn with fluttering pennons. Through the almost imperceptibly shortening days, I charged each day with a golden hope, and in gay bravado watched each one coming, shining and going, without wishing to stop it, and without regretting its passing. Certainly this bravado sprang from the amazing insouciance of youth, but my mother was also partly to blame for it. For without saying a word about the matter, she let me see that she was well disposed towards my friendship with Anna. Associating with this intelligent and well-mannered girl had certainly done me good, there was no denying that, and it seemed to me that Mamma would also approve a deeper and closer relationship with Anna. So there was no need for worry and concealment, and I behaved towards Anna as I would have towards a dear sister. Such a situation, however, was far from what I wanted, and after a while this static chumminess between us at times became almost painful to me. For I wished to emerge from the well-fenced garden of friendship into the broad, unbounded fields of love, and I had no idea how I could imperceptibly lure my unsuspecting friend out on the open roads. But out of this very conflict there arose, during the last part of my vacation, a deliciously free state of suspension between contentment and desiring more which remains in my memory as a state of great happiness. So we passed pleasant summer days in our fortunate household. With mother I had meanwhile returned to the old relationship of a child, so that I could talk to her about my life without constraint, could confess past faults and discuss plans for the future. I still remember one morning how we sat in the arbour wielding yarn. I had told mother what had happened to my belief in God, and had finished by asserting that if I were ever to become a believer again, someone would have to come along and convert me. At this my mother smiled and looked at me. After meditating for a while, she said, Probably no one will ever come along and convert you, but gradually you yourself will learn that it isn't possible to go on through life without faith. For knowledge is good for nothing, you know. Every day you are apt to see someone whom you thought you knew through and through do something that proves how little you really know people, or can be certain about anything. And yet people need something they can rely upon. People need certainty. And then it is always better to turn to the Saviour rather than to some professor or Bismarck or anyone else. Why, I asked. After all, there isn't so much that we know for certain about the Saviour. Oh, we know enough. And then, too, in the course of ages, there have been individuals here and there who were able to die with self-confidence and without fear. It is said that Socrates was one, and there were some others, but not many. 
and in fact they were very few, and if they were able to die calmly and composedly it was not because of their wisdom, but because their hearts and consciences were pure. Very well, let us say that these few people were right, each one right for himself. But how many of us are like them? As against these few, you see on the other side thousands upon thousands of poor, ordinary people who have nevertheless been able to die willingly and with composure because they believed in the Saviour. Your grandfather lies suffering terribly for fourteen months before he was granted relief, yet he did not complain and suffered all that pain and death almost cheerfully because the Saviour was his consolation. And finally, Mother said, I know quite well that I cannot convince you. Faith does not come through reason any more than love, but you will some day learn that reason does not cover everything, and when you have come to that point, then in your extremity you will snatch at anything that seems to offer support. Perhaps then you will remember some of the things we have said today. I helped Father in the garden, and often when I went for walks I would bring back for him a sackful of forest soil for him to use on his potted plants. With Fritz I invented new fireworks and burned my fingers setting them off. With Lottie and Anna Amberg I spent whole mornings or afternoons in the woods helping to pick berries and look for flowers. I read aloud to them from my favourite books and discovered new places for strolls. The fine summer days ran into one another. I had become accustomed to being about Anna all the time, and when I thought about this, I realised it would soon come to an end and dark clouds blackened the bright blue of my vacation sky. And as all loveliness and sweetness is mortal and has its destined end, day after day of this summer too slipped through my fingers, this summer which in memory seems to have brought my youth to a close. The family began to talk of my impending departure, Mother once more went carefully through my stock of clothing, mending a few things, and on the day I packed, she presented me with two pairs of substantial grey woollen socks that she had knitted herself. Neither of us knew that it was to be her last gift to me. Long dreaded, and yet surprising when it came, the last day finally arrived. It was a fair blue late summer sky with lacy clouds and a soft southeast breeze that played in the garden among the roses, still blooming in great numbers. A breeze that gathered all the fragrance of the summer until, toward noon, it grew tired and went to sleep. Because I had decided to make the most of the day and not to leave until late evening, we young people decided to spend the afternoon on an outing. That left the morning hours for my parents, and I sat between the two of them on the sofa in Father's study. Father had saved a few farewell presents for me. Now, with a kind of joking tone that concealed his emotion, he gave them to me. There was a small, old-fashioned purse with a sum of money in it, a pen to carry in the pocket, 
and a neatly bound notebook that he had made himself, and in which he had written in his austere hand a good dozen maxims. He advised me to be sparing but not stingy with the money, to use the pen to write home frequently, and if I found any more good maxims that my experience had tested, to set them down in the notebook beside those which in his own life he had found useful and true. We sat together more than two hours, and my parents told me a good many stories of the past, of our own childhood, of theirs, and of the lives of their parents. Stories that were new to me, and struck me as important. I have forgotten much of what they say, and as at intervals my thoughts kept wandering away to Anna, I may well have not listened to all of the earnest and weighty things they said. But what has remained with me is a vivid memory of that morning in the study, and a feeling of deep gratitude and reverence for both of my parents, whom today I see in an aura of purity and holiness which no other human beings have for me. But at the time, the farewell I had to take in the afternoon touched me far more deeply. Soon after lunch I set out with the two girls along the road over the mountain. Our destination was a lovely forest gorge, a steep-walled tributary valley of our river. At first my sullen mood made the other two silent and thoughtful, but when we reached the peak of the mountain, from where the winding valley and forested hills could be seen through the tall red trunk of the firs, I wrenched myself out of my depression with a loud whoop. The girls laughed and instantly started to sing a hiking song. It was O Talvite, O Hohen, an old favourite of mother's, and I sang along and recalled many joyous outings in the woods in my childhood and on past vacations. Just as soon as the last notes of the song died away, we began, as though by agreement, to talk about those times and about Mother. We spoke of those times with gratitude and pride, for we had a glorious youth, and I walked hand in hand with Lottie until Anna, laughing, took my other hand. Then we strode along the whole length of the road that ran on the ridge, the three of us swinging our hands in a kind of dance, and it was a joy to be alive. Then we climbed down a steep, slanting footpath that led to a brook at the bottom of the deep gorge. From a distance we could hear the brook leaping over stones and ledges. Farther upstream along the brook was a favourite inn of ours, where I had invited the two girls to have coffee, cake and ice cream with me. Descending the hill and along the brook we had to walk in single file, and I remained behind Anna looking at her and trying to think of some way to speak alone with her before the day ended. Finally a pretext occurred to me. We were close to our destination and had arrived at a grassy spot covered with wild pinks. I suggested to Lottie that she go on ahead to order the coffee and have a nice garden table sat for us, while Anna and I gathered a big bouquet of ferns and flowers, this being such a fine spot to pick them. Lottie thought this a good idea and went ahead. Anna sat down on a moss-covered rock and began plucking fronds of fern. 
So this is my last day, I began. Yes, it's too bad, but you will surely be coming home again soon, won't you? Who knows? Not next year at any rate, even if I do come again, it won't be the same. Why not? Well, it would be if you should happen to be here again. You know, that's not altogether out of the question. But, after all, your coming home this time had nothing to do with me. Because I didn't know you then. Yes, of course, but you aren't even helping me. You might have hand me a few of those pinks over there. I pulled myself together. I'll pick them by and by. But at the moment, something else is more important to me. You see, now I have a few minutes alone with you, and that is what I've been waiting for all day. Because since I must leave today, you know, well, I wanted to ask you, Anna. She looked at me, her intelligent face grave and somewhat troubled. Wait, she interrupted my stumbling speech. I think I know what you want to say to me. And now I must ask you sincerely not to say it. Not say it? No, Herman, I cannot tell you now why that cannot be, but I don't mind your knowing. Ask your sister some other time later on. She knows all about it. We have so little time now, and it's a sad story. Let's not be sad today. Let us make our bouquet now until Lottie comes back, and for the rest, let us stay good friends and be jolly together for the rest of this day. Will you? I would if I could. All right, then, listen. My case is the same as yours. There's someone I care for and cannot have. But when that's how it is, there's all the more reason to cling to the friendship, kindness and fun that come your way from other quarters, don't you think? This is why I say let us stay good friends, and for this last day at least have fun together. Shan't we? I murmured yes, and we shook hands on it. The brook spotted in its bed and sprayed drops of water up at us. Our bouquet grew huge and vivid, and before long we heard my sister's voice approaching us, singing and calling out. When she reached us, I pretended I wanted to drink. I knelt by the brook's edge and dipped my forehead and eyes into the cool, flowing water for a short while. Then I took up the bouquet and we went together the short distance to the inn. There, under a maple tree, a table was sat for us, with ice cream, coffee and cookies. The innkeeper's wife welcomed us, and to my own surprise I found I could talk and answer people and eat as though all were well. I became almost gay. I made a little after-dinner speech and laughed unforcedly when the others laughed. I will never forget with what simplicity and kindness and amiability Anna helped me to get over my humiliation and sadness that afternoon. Without betraying the fact 
that something had occurred between us. She treated me with a wonderful friendship that helped me to act normal. I was filled with the greatest respect for her older and deeper sorrow, and for the serene manner in which she bore it. The narrow forest gorge was filling with early evening shadows when we started out again. But on the ridge, which we reached after a quick climb, we caught up with the sinking sun and walked for another hour in its warm light before we lost sight of it again as we descended to the town. I looked back at the sun one last time as it hovered, large and pink among the tops of the black pines, and I thought that tomorrow, far from here, I would see it again in foreign places. In the evening, after I had taken my leave of all in the household, Lottie and Anna walked with me to the station and waved after me as the train slid away into the darkness. I stood at the window of the car and looked out on the town, where street lamps were already lit and windows glowed brightly. As the train approached our garden, I caught sight of a powerful blood-red flare. There stood my brother, Fritz, holding a Bengal light in each hand. At the very moment that I waved to him, and rode by he sent a skyrocket shooting straight up into the air. Leaning out, I saw it mount and pause, describe a gentle arc, and vanish in a rain of red sparks. <laughs>